At FOTA Media, a group of volunteers have come together to publish what is newsworthy, with no narrative feeding agenda. For years, Lebanese media outlets have been bought, monopolized, and made to promote or push for a political agenda, more recently resulting in the twisting of the truth. FOTA is an independent media platform born in the early weeks of the Lebanese October Revolution. We produce videos, publish articles, and create other types of creative content to help our society grow beyond the expired narrative promoted by local mainstream media. To keep photo on its feet, following and releasing stories, we need your help. So far, we've been surviving on the little money we had saved from our day jobs before the economic crisis and a few food boxes from generous friends. This financial roadblock seems difficult to overcome, so we are asking of our friends, independent and free-minded individuals, to support us by donating to Foda Media's GoFundMe. Check out our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for more information. Thank you. So this is a conversation with Ayman Makarem. He's a Lebanon-based writer and filmmaker who recently wrote essays on mutual aid in Lebanon for the public source. One of the themes of this podcast is to promote mutual aid for the 21st century, so I was really looking forward to speaking with Ayman about this. In addition to reading his essay, this has been a topic that the two of us have been discussing since Lebanon's October 2019 uprising. We both found that there were structures that were lacking within revolutionary settings in Lebanon that could allow for a much longer-lasting movement, and the same could be said for most of the rest of the world. Mutual aid is simply voluntary, reciprocal exchange of resources and services for mutual benefit. Most of us already practice it with family, friends and or communities without really feeling the need to label it. The problem starts with the fact that mutual aid is seen as something that arises out of a state of exception. For example, as we go through an ongoing pandemic, more people everywhere around the world have been reported to be willing to adopt quote-unquote exceptional societal measures to ease the burden. But what those of us arguing for mutual aid argue for is that we shouldn't need a state of exception to think of ways to build a fairer society, and we obviously believe that mutual aid is one way of doing that. As usual, you can follow the podcast on Twitter at FireThesetimes, and if you like what I do, please consider supporting this project with only $1 a month on Patreon or on BuyMeCoffee.com, and you can also do so directly on PayPal if you prefer. Patreon is for monthly, PayPal is for one-offs, and BuyMeCoffee.com has both options. Thank you for your time. My name is Eamon McCarrum. I'm a Lebanese writer and filmmaker and researcher. And um, well, I've been thinking about sort of radical politics for a while now, but especially since uh, October 17, and have really been struggling and doing quite a bit of research to try and find practical, you know, solutions to the problems we see in front of us that both address the political and the material. So this will be what like, I hope to be the first of many episodes on mutual aid in the context of Lebanon. And the idea really is to kind of give some kind of general overview of what mutual aid is and uh, you know, how it, what it can look like, uh, what are some of its um, differences, let's say, with uh, charity, for example, or philanthropy for that matter, which we'll get into in a bit. 
But the reason why personally uh, I'm that interested in mutual aid is that I really feel that it's one of those things that is intuitive to most people. So like if you don't call it by name and you just say stuff like uh, we should live in a society that's fair and where people are helping each other out and all of that, most people tend to kind of be on board already. There's no real, uh, there's no real name for an ism, so to speak. So can you can we start by um, you telling us a bit about what has interested you in mutual aid? Right. Yeah. No. I mean, you did hit on um, quite a few things, and there's sort of this. Um, well, first, it's it's born out of necessity, right? That especially now in Lebanon, we see that there is dire need for just direct aid for assistance. Like I said, before we talk about any of these grand ideals that we have and the society we live in, there are people that are just materially starving or, or unable to pay rent. And what I, what I really appreciate and what I really love about mutual aid and what gets me so excited about it is that it does it in such a way that doesn't forego the political or the revolution. Um, I, I agree. I think it's very important to frame this in relation or in opposition to charity, partly because uh, most people know what charity is and are familiar with the dynamics of charity, um, but also because it, it, in comparison, they both reveal the ideological roots of um, or the ideological presuppositions involved. So. Yeah, in loose terms, yeah, mutual aid is a system of uh, organizing around aid, right? It's, it's, it seeks to build communities and uh, cooperative communities that meet each other people's essential needs. Charity is also an organizational structure built around aid, but obviously it's a very top-down organizational structure, and it's very transactional, that essentially you would... Um, I, I'd like to use the example of food distribution, that a charity, as we all know, you would go around and hand out food indiscriminately. Uh, I mean, well, targeting the poor or targeting the hungry. Um, so if, if, if charity is handing out food, mutual aid is more akin to creating a communal kitchen. Um, something like the Foods Not Bombs programs, that is a sort of a global network um, is a kind of structure wherein you get people would um, acquire food from local producers. Imagine a khadarji here, a, a grocer, has produce that he's going to throw away. It's not yet rotten, but it's no good to sell. And so you collect that food, put it into this kitchen, process it, you know, cook it, and uh, and distribute it. And uh, what this includes is not just the sort of more sustainable, uh, more grassroots structure, but it also kind of breaks down the barriers that charity has of I am the giver and you are the givee, or I'm the helper and you're the helpie. Because you can imagine that these communal kitchens, as in a lot of cases, is run by people who also use it. Um, and so it has, it, it sort of creates this naturally non-hierarchical structure. It doesn't always have uh, it sometimes does have hierarchies, but uh, the fact that it's it's a sort of paradigm shift, it's a change of thinking. It's not, I have a lot of money and, and you, you don't, so I'm just going to give you a bit. It's It also, what I said earlier, that it sort of, it exposes the ideological roots. Um, 
that sort of betrays the ideological presuppositions is charity. You kind of get the sense that there's not really much analysis as to why these but the poor people are poor or hungry people are hungry. They just yeah. are. It's almost a fact of nature. Yeah, like and, a fact of life. Yeah. Yeah, and so like these are victims of circumstance. It's a it's a tragedy head on. You know, Muslimin. Just like let's, but that kind of only goes so far. And so what you find is that charity kind of supplements capitalism because it doesn't aim at the root structures. So it, it supplements and in some cases perpetuates capitalism because it's it doesn't really address the root causes and so it basically it functions as a band-aid. Um, Adam Dati Roy writes a, a beautiful uh, passage about this, the, what is it called, the, the neoliberalization of resistance or something of the sort, but... Uh, and the, oh no, she creates a term, the NGOization of resistance. It's a fantastic article. But uh, essentially, mutual aid stands in opposition to that. By aiming at the sort of grassroots level, by organizing non-hierarchically, it sort of aims to uh, empower communities and change the root circumstances. So you imagine that community kitchen, it it sort of approaches the problem at its core. It's not, these people aren't then reliant. It's not a transaction that then you go away feeling good about yourself. It's a, it's a long-lasting community that ultimately uh, aims towards sustainability, autonomy, and cooperation. There are, there are two things that got me into mutual aid, in a sense. One was the sort of the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina in the United States. And the other one was the, especially in the, the early days of the Syrian revolution, so 2011, 2012, 2013 to a certain extent. And that sort of continued uh, and continues to the present day, but at a, at a um, less, uh, uh, at a lower level, so to speak. One thing that the Hurricane Katrina story for me kind of um, debunked in a sense is this idea that when, when disaster hits, you know, the kind of the common plot in it's a, it's a it's a common movie trope, you know, like something bad happens in the world. And essentially what happens is that, you know, it's dog eat dog. Like everyone's going to try and kill one another. Everyone's going to start uh, looting everything. And uh, like everything is just one one person, or maybe one family against one family. And that's it. People stop thinking about their neighbors, for example. But what we actually see in many cases, like in the case of Hurricane Katrina, is the people actually come together because, as you said, mutual aid is actually born out of necessity. And we saw these soup kitchens, of course, and but we actually we also saw these. Um, I think they call them disaster reliefs, that were uh, that were functioning on a mutual aid basis. So you had the big charities that that came in as well, and you know that many of many people that that work in these charities and volunteer for these charities, these are good people. They they obviously don't mean badly. But they would do things, and as you said, it kind of, um, it only goes so far. And so the pe people involved in mutual aid, usually kind of like anarchists and other people kind of uh, hovering around, if you want, that kind of, of politics, and people who don't define themselves as anything as well, they kind of come with this additional critique, if you want. But it's not a critique as in like they, they stand at the door of charities and they yell at the charities. It's more of a, the, a critique through action. So they just kind of show that there is a way also of doing things that it's almost like through their actions they show the limits of charity so if you if you're if you have enough resources to create a soup kitchen 
why 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 that barrier between those who are giving and those who are receiving you can also create something that's more communal like a communal soup kitchen and this is where mutual aid comes into ha comes in, into play in the case of syria we it's more the the local councils i'll let you kind of talk about this a bit more but when i discovered the the local councils and the, even the the coordination committees in the early days of the of the 2011 uh, uprising and revolution it was also this necessity, like the state withdrew from uh, certain parts of Syria, was either forced out or like tactically withdrew f to focus on other parts uh, as it as it tried to do in the early days. And that obviously created a necessity. It's either we organize ourselves and we c find a way to create a, a an alternative to the state or we starve. Like it was really that that simple and that basic. And obviously people opted for the former, as, as one can imagine. And they did so through various forms of uh, what we end, what is ended up calling the local council. So various ways of organizing either to like it was democratic to a certain extent. Some local councils were more democratic than others. Others were, were a bit less so. Some had kind of like a religious undertone or overtone, uh, others not so much and so on and so forth. So can uh, with that in mind, can you talk a bit about uh, some of these contemporary examples of mutual aid that have, uh, let's say, that have inspired you personally. Yeah, no, um, I'm honestly kind of ashamed that I didn't know about these uh, local councils and about the sort of grassroots movements in Syria until quite late in, uh, only a few years ago when basically most of them were um, destroyed or co-opted. Um, uh, yeah, and, and to, to think about when I became interested in mutual aid, it's, it's hard to pinpoint a specific uh, time, but I've always generally been very interested in the sort of daily life of these superstructures we live under. Um, that not just, because obviously it's very important to pay attention to capitalist exploitation at, at the superstructure level of Jeff Bezos and of uh, ExxonMobil and all these things, but also just how we interact with one another, and, um, me going to the grocery, me going, you know, how I live my life. And so that was articulated to me brilliantly by Omar Aziz. And there was a sentence in one of his manifestos, one of his essays that just summed this up, exemplified this perfectly. He says something, the, the, these councils would be where the revolution meets the everyday life or something of the sort. Um, and, um, and Omar Aziz, for those who don't know, was a Syrian anarchist thinker. Yeah, yeah exactly. And um, a lot of these movements obviously are grassroots and are born from the communities. But in terms of, uh, he is one of the brainchild, or, or the local councils is a kind of brainchild of his. That, um, yeah. So, and the local councils for me, and, and all these, the sort of organizing that was involved in Syrian cities and towns that, um, we saw yeah, between 2011 and 2015, and it still sort of exists. To me, when those really became clear in my head, it was after I started asking myself, how, do these, how are these cities surviving under siege? That siege is such a, 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 like a, what's the word, a totalizing event. There's nothing coming in, going out. There, you have these underground passages and everything, but we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people, and for three, four, sometimes five years under siege. Now, what amazed me when I sort of discovered about these local councils is it 
it, it, it proved the strength of some of this forms of organizing that under the most dire, utter dire circumstances that human beings can be under, that communities can be under, um, that structures like these can actually work. Um, and so, yeah, I, I was, I, I have, I've arrived at sort of mutual aid and anarchism in general by a sort of, I mean, in 2008, I was a liberal. I love Barack Obama and everything. Around 2000, yeah, yeah, 11, 2014. Ashamed to admit, but I'm, I was a bit of a, kind of a, I wouldn't say tanky, but uh, kind of a bit of an obnoxious leftist. And uh, it was sort of, I don't know when it really started to happen, but I started to move away from these things and trying to find these sort of third ways and not neo, not the neoliberal third way, but like, I still have these leftist tendencies, but I don't agree with the manifestations of the state. And so mutual aid served as that kind of, it, it, it is so basic. And I'll go through some examples, but for me, mutual aid always... It, it is what you do with friends. It's what you do with family. It's exactly, um, yeah. but it's also what communities do. A story that I often tell whenever I sort of go through mutual aid is my uncle, who, whenever I'm in my village in the mountains, and he's there, you every single time at least one person shows up, sees his car, goes up to him and asks him, "Hey, I've got this thing, my elbow, or my wife has this problem." Um, and he gives them advice. He he doesn't prescribe them anything because that's, I guess, kind of legal, but like he sort of tells them this and that, and if it gets any worse, whatever. Because, well, I don't know, he's got a sense of community that, let's say, if this if, if it's the butcher, if the butcher were to fall ill and die, if we take like a fully free market approach, that's terrible. It's terrible for the community. It's terrible for everybody. Um, but so there's kind of this natural mutual aid, this I we do have a natural understanding that what's good for the community is good for the individual, it's good for all of us. Um, and I see a lot of the superstructures that exist today as kind of covering and clamping down on those and destroying those natural bonds that have taken hundreds, thousands of years to sort of form just naturally. Uh, I see, and mutual aid does have that, um, sort of historical depth. Um, I know you wanted me to talk about contemporary examples when I immediately jumped to the historic. No, that's fine. Uh, I mean, you know. <laughs> yeah. But in thinking about how fundamental mutual aid is, um, one of the early thinkers of mutual aid is, is a man named Peter Kropotkin, who was a Russian anarchist in the late 19th century. And how he, even though there were actual mutual aid societies preceding him formalizing it in these words, which I'll go through in a, in a minute, um, he came to the idea of mutual aid as a factor of evolution. Uh, he was a zoologist as well as an anarchist as well as a prince. Um, but essentially what he observed was that despite the mainstream notion that evolution is a process of domination, of competition... Um, survival of the fittest. Survival of the fittest. Uh, it, in fact, there was also quite a lot of cooperation that he saw, and you can see it every day, not just in society, but the same, but also amongst animals, that there's a lot of symbiotic relationships between animals. The pack animals hunt together. 
not because then the, the, the strongest of them will take the animal and eat alone. It's because it's good for the majority, for, for the collective. So we can see that mutual aid is, is kind of a fundamental thing. It's almost kind of boring. People find it kind of redundant for me to, like you said at the beginning, help each other, um, cooperation. It sounds like natural phenomenon that doesn't need to be formalized. The way I try to think about mutual aid, there are, there are two different dimensions to, to it. Uh, kind of just to kind of complicate the story a bit more. To to I think it attracts attention if you want. Because if we just say, uh, well, we need to we need to help each other. Like most people who kind of just agree with that statement. It's a very basic statement, uh, which is a good thing. It actually shows that like it is it is something very basic. It's kind of like an instinct as well because we are extreme social creatures and indeed. Uh, one of the the struggles that we're having right now with the with the with the pandemic is that the 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 basic sh- social instinct that we have has to be ruptured due to the the social distancing, and so the two dimensions that I'm mentioning is one is I I'm trying to argue and I mean I'm not the only one doing so but I I agree with this method if you want that the economy actually has four sides to it it's not just the binary of one on one on one hand you have the uh, private market and then you have the public and the public equals the state and you know usually the story is if you're a leftist then you want more of the public slash state and if you're a right winger you want more of the market slash private property or private stuff in general and uh, like the, the the four-sided approach if you want that I'm, I'm proposing is better and as I said it's not mine is that yes you have these two these are just a fact of life in most societies that that is the current societies we live in these two do exist but you also have the household slash family. Uh, I'm going to say household to be more progressive about it because it doesn't have to be just family in the tradi- traditional sense, obviously. And then you have the commons. The household is very important because it's actually, uh, obviously, is gendered in most, in most uh, societies in the world to this day. Um, uh, domestic work, if you want, is not counted as labor, is not counted as part of the market or of the public, for that matter. It's not taxed, obviously. It's not... It's not like, you know, uh, someone who works at home, like let's say a mom who works at home is paid an hourly wage or anything like that. And then the, 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 fourth, the, the fourth dimension is the commons. Now the commons basically means everything that, that can be commonly owned or commonly shared, let's say, to not use the word owned. And mutual aid sort of addresses the latter two. It addresses the household and it addresses the, the, the common. The common is, as I said, the like public parks, uh, a forest that is not uh, managed, so to speak, or, you know, everything in between and, and beyond, depending on the context. But the household is very important because we already practice mutual aid uh, in most households uh, where, let's say, a relationship between the parents and the children is a healthy relationship. We're not talking about the toxic ones and abusive ones. Obviously, that's a different story. But this is what mutual aid actually means like when i when i think of what i can do towards my sister and like the way we interact towards one another it's not the transnational transactional things in the sense that you know she she owes me 17 dollars from 10 years ago and therefore i'm not going to help her if you know it's much more fluid and this kind of fluidity is actually what mutual aid is about it's about not having to um you know maintain a debt when it's about friends or it's about you you always have these exceptions in real life like if it's a friend you don't necessarily keep tab on how much that friend owes you again depending on the circumstances but that is that is the general that is the general idea and the second dimension is something that i that is called the donut economics and it's a funny word because it's actually shaped like a donut 
um, I forgot the name of, of the, the, the theorist and the writer behind it, but if people just Google donut economics, they'll find it. And the idea is that there should be a, a lower limit and an upper limit to our economies. And the lower limit is like social safety nets and uh, all, all of the, yeah, everything related to social safety nets like homelessness, poverty, hunger, uh, water safety, you know, um, Wi-Fi, internet actually is, is included these days as well. Anything that people need to stay afloat. Like this is what people need in life to not be uh, drowning in debt or to not find themselves on the street and, you know, etc., etc. Whereas the upper limit is uh, the planetary limits. Uh, so, you know, climate change, obviously, like the ozone layer, soil degradation, uh, ocean acidification, all of these things that we also need, obviously, to, to live in a healthy environment on a healthy planet. And for me, mutual, like the, the fact that we need to be in between a uh, lower limit and upper limit and the idea of donut economics is that saying, let us at least agree that there should be this lower limit and upper limit. And then we can have kind of a discussion on how to organize societies better. For me, that is the spirit of mutual aid, because what it says is you have to have social safety nets for people so that you no longer have these extremes. So you already eradicate these extremes. And then you have to have, obviously, the um, by extremes, I'm talking about like extreme poverty and so on. And then you have to have the upper limits for basic survival, like so that future generations can participate in, in our world in the same way that we supposedly want to. And mutual aids kind of come in between those two. Now, Donut Economics, she doesn't frame it in the, in the, in the way of mutual aid. And, you know, in many ways, it's a, actually a, uh, one might argue, it's kind of like more, uh, social democratic or maybe democratic socialist take on things and you know it will always have its limits but the general idea is really the fact that we need to think about our world beyond just growth beyond just unfettered growth uh, more is better we uh, organize everything around our lives on GDP and then we only think about the national debt and all of these things the idea with all of this is that we need to kind of upend all of that logic to kind of have a better logic a more sustainable logic and a more mutual aid oriented logic, a friendlier logic, let's, let, to use a, a much more basic term. Now, in the context of Lebanon, the popular uprising that we've been seeing since October, and now obviously there are ups and downs to it and everything. One of the things that for me it highlighted is how little prepared we are uh, to kind of deal with emergencies. And we are, we are not well prepared for it, in my opinion, of course, and we can agree on this or disagree on this, or maybe I'll ask you to just expand on, on uh, like basically just have your take on this, is that up until now, we haven't really thought outside of just s small circles of our societies as being able to be built, like to actually function around principles like mutual aid. So we only think about mutual aid in a sense when, as we said in the beginning, it comes out of a state of necessity. So essentially, okay, well now we're in a state of emergency, state of exception, this is not a normal way of doing things. So now we can allow ourselves to be more decent to one another. It's kind of, it's, it's a bit uh, surreal when we put it into these terms, but that is essentially what happens in case of a pandemic, and which is what we're seeing now. We're seeing every, all of the, the polls that I've been reading in the UK, in Spain, and I think Mexico I read, in the Philippines, uh, no, it was Thailand, sorry, and other places, people have kind of shifted and become more progressive about things, saying things like, People should be supported. They shouldn't lose their jobs. They should have some basic security, basic so, uh, safety nets. They shouldn't be criminalized if they cannot pay, uh, you know, for healthcare. Healthcare should be free. Like 
people are more likely to accept these things that because now we're in a state of exception. And I guess my um, frustration with all of this is that why do we only think about how to be more decent towards one another when we get to a point where we have no other choice other than to be more decent towards one another? Does that make sense? No, no, it is very interesting. But like, and it is quite upsetting because it sort of feels that these shifts could have, should have happened earlier. And that now that it's become a necessity, it's almost harder to do them. And uh, I, I see this in a lot of different cases. Um, there's, there's sort of that like the big awakening after Trump was elected that like, oh, now we must form this new movement to what's it called. But it, it almost felt like not too late, but like surely there was enough room under like, you know, the, de the Democrats that you could form these things and not have to deal with all the inanities that are coming out of the White House since Trump was elected. Um, it is it is a paradox and I find it very, it is very frustrating. Um, but I do like the analysis. I do agree with you that the sort of initial burst of the October Revolution kind of exposed our unpreparedness, especially us that are sort of um, more politically engaged, more politically sentient. And I think I, I've, I've heard this discussed and I find it very interesting that a lot of people talk about the WhatsApp tax as being that sort of like initial trigger. And just in terms of like the timing, it, it explicitly was. But the the fires in Shuf, the sort of like the, the wildfires that happened, I think only like a day or two earlier. Yeah, two days uh, before, yeah. Yeah, exposes that exact same unpreparedness. And, um, and the fact that what are we living in? What kind of state is this? Where it's just, you literally have thousands and thousands of, 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 of trees and acres of just burning to the ground. And I, well, I find it very poetic that the government, that the state had nothing to deal with it. And I think there were reports that they were using riot uh, water cannons to turn yeah, off the yeah, fires. That's genius. Like, cause that's, that just exposes that the state has really reduced its functions to just, um, you know, protecting private property and uh, yeah, riot control and everything. Yes. Um, but interesting there as well, I, I think there were, um, there's a Palestinian camp nearby where their firefighters came out and helped and everything. Um, there was a, um, a crowdfunding, I forget what the website's called, but it's an Arabic crowdfunding uh, website. Within a day or two, raised about fifty, hundred thousand dollars just just because and, and I really saw that energy really build into October 17, that, that same, like, this is fucked and we need to sort of, like, work together to deal with it. Um, well, the, the timing was, was phenomenal because it, it was, yeah, this built up of energy and anger, the, both the, the same things at the same time. The, the catastrophic failure of the government on one, side, on, on one side and the fact that people actually stepped up. Like, at the end of the day, for those, for, like, listeners who don't know, the reason why these fires were actually put out was like a combination of luck because it started raining after two days and uh, the fact that some foreign governments, I think Greece, Cyprus and Jordan donated like a few planes and yeah. the fact that uh, volunteers actually stepped up to help fire firefighters. So the, the Palestinian firefighters was one, were one of them and then you just have people living in the area to just come out and try to extingu extinguish the fires. Um, that is mutual aid like that's the thing it doesn't like i don't need to call it anything else that that is what people did the the fact that 
there is a forest burning down and we need to stop the forest from burning down so that's it like it doesn't it when something like as basic as that happens and then we go back to the to the question of necessity you don't think about like what is the most cost effective way of of offing of sorry of extinguishing the the, the forest fire what is the best way of uh, the most market friendly way of turning turning off the fires like you know these are not the calculations that we make no, exactly. And when this happened, around October 20, I, um, I, I tried writing a poem. I'm, I'm, I'm a terrible poet. I don't do it. But <laughs> I'll just stick to articles and screenwriting. Um, but because there was such a poetic kind of um, symbolism to the, the fires, the, the waters that turned out the fire, and uh, the idea that like the masses of people coming out into the streets represent that same rain that'll put out the fires in the um, the Grand Serai and whatever. It, it was a yeah, terrible yeah. poem. It, it, it's completely <laughs> convoluted, but but I, I think the poetry still exists. And I've actually heard um, Naomi Klein use similar imagery, the idea that there is this fire that's burning. She talks about like two different fires, the fires that's burning, which is climate change, but then also this like competing fire, which is global grassroots protest movements. But I agree. The idea is, 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 is it's not, um, yes, there's this fire. I mean, climate change, I, I find it phenomenal that no one's like, people don't, I, I get panic attacks when I think about it, um, that it's just, holy fuck, the world is on fire. And when Brazil and the Amazon and Australia, it's just like, we had to do something and um, there's that urgency, that necessity, that because it's the most basic fundamental thing. And I think this is where Kropotkin really comes in, where it is at the moment a matter of survival of the species. That it's not, we're not trying to think of, yeah, well, how do we go about this? And what's, you know, and it's, it, and that's why I'm very skeptical of any capitalist kind of solutions to the thing, because the problem is competition. The problem is thinking about things in terms of growth. Because we we cannot think about how can we put out the fires that are literally destroying the world, with thinking well how can we make it profitable, and and, and this goes back to what you were saying and I hundred percent agree, mutual aid does service uh, a new type of economics that it's, that disagrees with growth because obviously the, the basic phrase that we can't have infinite growth with finite means and finite resources it's just it's just uh, paradoxical. Um, and so mutual aid really does serve it. I think what I love about it, it really does redefine economics. It does, because economics are, what, what is it? It's, it's, we were so wrapped up in GDP and wrapped up in, in all these things, but it's how we relate to one another and our resources and how do we actually provide for one another and, and go about, you know, social and economic relations. How do we deal with one another? And, a mutual aid brings it back to the fore, brings it back to the core. Then the, the it, it, it sort of, do we want to treat each other by competition, skepticism? What what have you done for me lately? Or is it more about, I care about you because you're my neighbor, and because if if you know, and if we think about friends, obviously it's much more natural. I love my friends. I want the best for them. So if someone if they come up to me and ask me for help, I don't ask them, well, what can you do for me? Um, because there's a sort of reciprocity. Um, I do really like the example that David Graeber brings up. And uh, David Graeber is an American anthropologist slash anarchist. Um, 
he brings up a really interesting um, uh, anecdote of uh, uh, an anthropologist uh, going to Madagascar, I think it was, and um, living amongst a sort of, I forget exactly what the context was, but the, this, the, the core of the story is that she's, people start giving her gifts, right? She just is inundated with gifts left and right, and she has no idea what to do about this, and she's happy, but she's, she doesn't know what's going on, until someone comes up to her and breaks up to her and tells her, well, listen, I'll let, I'll let you off the hook and tell you what's going on. No one will tell you, but in giving you gifts, these people are expecting you to give gifts back, right? Or give something back. But it's essential that you give something, give them something of less or greater value. Because if you give them something of equal value, you're basically telling them you want nothing to do with them. But if you give lesser or greater value, you're perpetuating the cycle of debt, of, of social indebtedness, and that it, it implies that you want to continue this relationship. And, and I love this story because I do this, I've, I realize I do this with my friends. Someone invites me to dinner, and I want to invite them to dinner, and back and forth, and sort of that, like, I'll let you pay this time, but next time it's on me. Um, and so that's, I feel more, you know, aside from capitalism, aside from how we're used to living our lives nowadays under all these oppressive systems, that's sort of more at the core of it. It reminds me of the village. It reminds me of that mutual reciprocity that I love my neighbor, therefore I want the best for him. And so, yeah, I think mutually does really service that new thinking of economics as and new ways of relating to one another outside of competition. And the key thing about um, the whole like next times on me is that the next time is not defined. And yeah. Uh, the difference so th that is what differentiates it between basically paying for your friends or letting your friends pay for you and you taking out a loan from a bank yeah at the end of the day you have to pay back the loan no exactly <laughs> and usually with interest he uses the example to kind of um because i find and i find this very fascinating there is this kind of myth of bartering that yeah, in, yeah, in yeah. More, yeah so yeah. he says like because it doesn't make any sense that I pay you dinner and it's $25 and then I have to buy you literally a $25 like show uh, <laughs> to So it is more vague and more because it because the, the feelings of love and reciprocity and all these things are very vague. It's just. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I know for a fact that I have friends that if I was if we were to apply capitalistic logic, I do. I would owe them thousands of dollars, or they would owe me thousands of dollars, and we we have no idea how much we owe each other, Yanni. Mm. And uh, you know, the, so the idea isn't that. Um, the idea really is that we we I guess the the, let's say the sentiment that you and I are trying to get across here is that everyone already like everyone already practices mutual aid on a day-to-day -day basis with their friends and family sometimes with their neighbors if they're close to their neighbors and we actually see this like so i, I will um say something that uh may, might sound weird uh at first but like uh, work with me here <laughs> the when we think of some uh because I, so i work in cultural studies so it's a lot about like uh I, I i look at media i look at tv series at movies at books and you know that kind of thing like, cu cultural productions let's say when we feel this uh homey feeling about villages in tv series like uh there's this netflix tv series called sex education which is super popular and everything the thing about uh that village 
is that it is both in a lovely environment so it's a beautiful place there's forest everywhere and everything and people are biking everywhere and it's also a multicultural environment so it's almost like this impossible place in in, in most mm. uh in most uh, uh places uh, sorry in most in most countries because usually it's urban areas where you have a higher diversity in in that sense so it's kind of like the best of both worlds in a sense but for me the 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 reason why for me personally i get this uh, cozy feeling in a sense the reason why we're so attracted to tv series no matter how problematic they are where you just have friends hanging out and doing something and everything is that you get to know them so there's that is the i think it's called a para something relationships you end up kind of um how do you say this you end up sort of relating to this fictional character as though you have a relationship with that fictional character but more importantly you sort of live through them hmm. and this is this can obviously reinforce loneliness if the sort of the ideal situation that you're seeing on screen isn't reflected in real life but more often than not what you're sort of craving is just that human interaction you what you're craving is that you can go down you know you live in a second floor apartment you go down you walk a bit you can go to the cafe the local grocer the local whatever the local whatever and people sort of know each other if not by name at least you know uh they would say hi every every uh, every now and then and you sort of had this this familiarity and mutual aid for me is sort of picture that sentiment the coziness the feel you know the uh community feeling and everything but put it in practice on a wider scale so the idea isn't just that we should uh, just have uh, a small community where people are nice to one another. But then when they get out of that community, it's dog eat dog. And we can, you know, uh, just live under, again, this capitalistic mindset. Just the basic logic of why you would be nice to your siblings and why you would be nice to your parents uh, and community, again, friends and neighbors and so on. That is the economic model that we're talking about. And so then the details are negotiable. They're, they're debatable. I'm not... I don't have the perfect quote-unquote economic model. I'm not telling you this is how our resources should be organized and this is how, what should... There, are, there will be cert, certain details that are kind of like debatable and up for discussion depending on the society and the context and the country that we're living in and the time that we're living in. But the general idea should be that. So instead of the general idea being we need to balance the debt, we need to uh, make sure that we, our credit is good, we need to make sure that we keep on having increasing GDP, no matter the income inequality, no matter the suffering on the ground, no matter all of that. Instead of all of that, we, you, you flip the, the base, basically. So the basic assumptions that we have are changed, and then we can sort of talk. So that, that is what appeals to me when it comes to mutual aid. But I wanted to ask you, have you found examples, in the case of Lebanon specifically, to kind of bring it back to Lebanon, where mutual aid is already practiced but it's not called that or where you kind of feel uh where mutual aid would actually be welcomed like it's something that people feel that oh sorry it's in a situation where people would feel that if mutual aid is practiced it would actually benefit them but it's just not practiced because it's not thought of this way yeah yeah of course there's um i found numerous examples of course none of them really use the term mutual aid i find that the word um solidarity is used much more, uh, but it, it basically functionally does describe uh, the same thing. Um, I found very few examples pre-Thoda, pre-revolution, and um, because essentially I think most of those holes before the Thoda, before revolution were either filled by 
charities and NGOs or with this sectarian clientelistic system that we have, which obviously has numerous problems. And a lot of these aid, mutual aid uh, sort of networks we've seen developing really stands in opposition to them because those, the clientelist systems are quite reactionary and anti-revolution, whereas these are with the, you know, supportive of the overthrow of, um, well, essentially the sectarian system that perpetuates it. So the first one that I, that I noticed that I found really beautiful, because I agree, the moment that I, we're out on the streets together and I was seeing all these people that I'd seen scattered over the city over the last few years, all come together and also meeting new people was a beautiful feeling uh, of community. So the first aid network that I sort of noticed were the food distribution uh, networks in Lazariya and Sahar Shahada. Um, here you had Matbakh al-Balad, you had, um, I forget the other the, one. The kitchen of the country is how you... Oh yeah, the kitchen of the country, exactly. Or the, um, and it was just basically a place where you could uh, volunteer, you could give food products, you could give resources, but they would just cook of uh, food on mass and it was actually really really tasty actually the guy does run a very good restaurant jai but essentially yeah it's um it adheres so fundamentally to the principles of mutual aid because of exactly where it fits and where it uh, where it's situated fair enough it didn't aim to kind of create a community but the community was already forming in the squares and the streets and so if we describe mutual aid as a process by which revolution meets aid and necessity and kind of just helping one another survive so that we can further uh, push back against these oppressive systems, literally having a stand in a revolutionary square and distributing food keeps people in the squares, right? Because you can't really have a revolution if people go hungry and need to go and work and, and get food. So... It at once, it, it's immediately political by its position, by its sort of like geographical position. Um, and so there I saw an example of mutual aid. And they didn't take anything. They took donations if you wanted, but any, it was open for anybody. And there were a lot of people in the squares that, um, actually me and my friends uh, did something similar a few times. We just brought some food and handed it out. And uh, you could tell that there are some people who are reliant on this food. And there are certain people who, who aren't. And one thing I found very beautiful was a lot of people were just so willing to give money. Just thank you for doing this and please take this money. And we're telling them, no, no, we just want to hand out. And anyway, um, aside from that, we see, we've seen numerous uh, crowdfundings on Facebook. Uh, this, again, also not aiming towards community building, but it's, it, this is separate from charity insofar as it centers people's needs that it's sort of this family needs this and this and that and as opposed to we're just handing out random amounts of uh, uh, food and resources and the like. Um, so there are a few other things and there are things that are happening mostly in the north which really excite me because these are very new as far as I'm, I'm aware uh, in Lebanon. Uh, there is an organization called Haba, Harakat uh, Haba, which translates to the basil movement. I don't know. I asked the guy why it's basil, and he just said, because basil is not like that fundamental of a, of a produce in Lebanon. 
Mm. Um, I was thinking maybe like Badunis because it's uh, parsley because <laughs> it's more consumed, but it doesn't, I don't know, it doesn't have the same ring. So anyway, Haba is a cooperative agricultural kind of movement that explicitly talk about returning to the land. That uh, it originally just started with this guy, Murad Ayash, who uh, posted on Facebook, had this idea, and, and posted on Facebook, I have this idea, I want to start farming, and I want to start like creating this cooperative agriculture um, a system. So if anyone has any land, anyone has any resources, you know, hit me up. And uh, it, it gained quite a bit of traction. Because, first of all, there is that same thing we were talking about earlier, where people really were realizing that, well, the, the state isn't going to help us. Um, the, the sectarian clientelist system is incredibly corrupt, and basically we're having this revolution to overthrow it. And so there's that impetus for it. There's that motivation. But then matched with that, there is also a lot of unused fertile land in Lebanon. Um, so basically... Yeah, it's been a few months, and I check up on them, and they're doing well and farming, and sort of it's it has educational purposes as well. That in Sahat um, al uh, and in Tripoli, they've they've held numerous kind of um, meetings where they sort of talk about cooperative agriculture and sustainability, and they're explicitly organic and um, talk about you know the same things we're talking about sustainability relating to one another because there's also something that's very interesting about things like this as opposed to charity which is there's I don't want to use the word dignity but there's something if, 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 if you know handing food out as opposed to allowing people to work and to sort of feed themselves and to sort of like be part of a community there's sort of a more sense of belonging and it's kind of empowering right yeah so especially uh, if if you get to know the people who are participating in this and then you like if you if you are participating in a soup kitchen in the morning and then you kind of uh, you you run, you know you run into the same person in the afternoon then the relationship between you two has already changed you're no longer just he's not just the person that you bought a coffee from you know that other yeah. day and that that's the extent of the relationship there's actually something beyond it at this point no yeah um, there's something quite jarring about how we're actually kind of a very collectivist society, but at the same time, very stratified. That like, yeah, the person I get my coffee from, I mean, me personally, I do, but most people, they don't really have a relationship with them. Hmm. Um, yeah, but yeah, I mean, it's it's a paradox of, for me, collectivism and individualism, like, they end up being binaries that don't explain much, but... No. There is definitely a sense, or at least let's let's put it that way. It's part of it's part of this perceived identity that we have. We always tell ourselves, especially, and we tell foreigners, especially, that we are, you know, a welcoming culture, a welcoming yeah. society. We we like to defenness, uh, like we like to just mm. um, what's the word? Uh, like we just we like to welcome people. We like to to hospitable to have them. and everything. Yeah, yeah, a hospitable culture exactly. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, that is one thing, but then even hospitable for me can be a bit limiting because you can say, well, I'm, I'm bringing you inside, but that's it. Like, I don't, I want, I still want a limit between us. But I mean, it's, it would still be a step forward, I suppose. And I, I guess that brings me to, um, oh, the, there the are, final... there are a few other examples I'd like to bring up before we move on, if you don't mind. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, um. There are other things happening in the North. I, I find it very strange because the North is usually a bit neglected politically. I think that's maybe one of the reasons why. 
Um, but somewhere in Lakudo, um, a guy named Ala Farhat, also working in cooperative agriculture. But he especially, I found very interesting because he's developed a kind of developmental council, a development council. Um, and he sort of created a mini ministry to uh, sort of like deal with the, all circled around agriculture, but like the education around this, the acquiring of goods, and he's creating a small seed bank. Uh, especially in a country with such fertile land, I find these cooperative agriculture movements quite interesting. Uh, there are a few examples of rooftop farmings, of urban agriculture, mm. which is something that I'm very excited about uh, because we have so much sun, we have so much soil and so, much resource, so many resources. Um, I've heard of one in a Palestinian camp, I believe, Burja Barajne. Uh, you linked me one actually today in Furna Shabek. Um, and along with that, this is something I, I, I really want to mention only because it's a slightly different way of thinking, seeing mutual aid and relates to what we're talking about, about relating to one another. Uh, there's a Facebook group called Isra, which means um, plant. farm, right? To plant. Yeah, farm, yeah. Farm, yeah. Um, or the, the, the verb of, but either way, um, and basically it's a community of around 20,000 people, uh, explicitly opened up by a few uh, engineers, I believe, who want to disseminate what they describe as best practices in farming, organic farming. And, um, but essentially what it functions as is, is a community of people who are all interested in agriculture, in urban agriculture and, and large farms. And it, it serves such an educational purpose uh, first of all, with in terms of cooperation and just sort of helping each other out and talking to each other. And I mean, I have a small little urban garden I'm farming, growing on my balcony. And God knows I've sent them dozens of photos. Like, I have these tomato plants that the, the flowers dropped and I was heartbroken. So I send them a photo and some guys, this one person, 10 minutes later, sends me, oh, uh, these are fine. You can actually pinch these off. The next ones will grow hard better. Um, or you're watering too much, and it's this nitrate, and it's this, what's it called? Because there's quite a lot to know, actually. Mm. And so that sort of, yeah, mutual sharing of information and, and education matched with the need for agriculture, and eventually we're going to see this much more in Lebanon, the need for food security. Um, this is actually my, one of my new favorite things, Israel. I, I follow it, I, I see the posts every day, and I... Because it's so supportive as well, so yeah. And and here I mentioned that like everything we just mentioned, uh, I will link it. I will link them in the in the description and on the blog post as well. Well, listen, Ayman. I mean, uh, that's all I had to say on mutual aid. It's just one of those topics that I know we can just go on for hours and hours and just tell people, hey, you should read up on it, and this is important and everything, but. Ultimately, what we're saying, I guess, with all of this is that this is already happening around you. Like these things are already happening. We're not we're not inventing anything new. It's been happening for a long time. It's been happening for centuries for that matter. We're just arguing for um, uh, we're arguing for it. We're saying that we need actually more of this and not less of this. We need to turn what we think of how we interact with one another w within a state of exception. Like, again, in the case of a pandemic, people feeling that. They're, they're more generous, like their priorities are, let's say, better priorities. It's no longer just about survival of the fittest and all of that uh, into something that is more general. Like you don't actually need to have a pandemic for people to start thinking that we need to be better towards one another and have a better society. So on that that is 
my final note if you want is there anything that you want to sort of conclude on or just have general reflections on no yeah this is one of those topics that i i go on for hours about and i get so worked up that i can't really stop um i've got a lot that i could continue but i guess that may be uh, for another conversation i'm sure that we can have lots of parts as i said like this is going to be uh, the first of hopefully many but like yeah with that in mind like really thank you a lot for your time no thank you I had a lot of fun with this. Me too.